Hello and welcome to The Rest is Entertainment with me, Marina Hyde. And me, Richard Osman. Welcome, welcome. Hi, Marina. How are you? Yeah, I'm not bad. I'm okay. A lot to talk about this week. There certainly is. Did you catch the new Gladiators? We were going to talk about some different things and then that came along and absolutely smashed the ratings for a number of different reasons. So I, I, I think maybe... We're going to talk about that and what it means. What it means, the nostalgia, the Saturday night of it. Like we're a pair of King's College professors saying, I wonder, what does Beyonce mean? (laughs) We're also going to talk about dead celebrities. George Michael's estate have registered effectively for live performance again, which means that they must be contemplating a hologram tour. And this is how it's been widely interpreted. So in the sort of vein of Abba Voyage, but with a dead celebrity at the helm of it. We'll have a look at that. And about how much money you can make if you're dead. You can, I mean, it's, they do, as I say, make a great living. Um, a lot of money. Look, look at Van Gogh. <laughs> um, what else are we going to talk about? We're also going to talk about, I read an interesting article about celebrity authors, which I felt <laughs> you would have something to say about. Um, yes. And um, I think that the top 30 big sellers of 2023, the list of that has come out, so we can talk about that we'll as well. We'll combine those two. I should look forward to that ever so much. But let's let's start with Gladiators, shall we? Can you feel the power of the Gladiators? I mean, I certainly can. Yeah. It's fascinating, isn't it? Because cause it, it was bought back. This is back. BBC One, yes. BBC One bought it back. Everyone says, oh, why are you rebooting a show? Why are you bringing back Gladiators? This is going to be awful. They're going to butcher it. Uh, and from the moment that theme tune starts, my wife Ingrid was virtually in tears with just the memory of Gladiators from, from the from the original because they kept the theme tune the same, they kept the format the same, they kept pretty much everything the same. And when the ratings came in the next day, six point four million, which I think Ian Highland, the great TV critic, said is like that's about fifteen million in old money. You know, that's a proper big smash hit. Uh, and people who started watching it, if you look at the ratings, kept watching it. I suspect they'll keep watching it next week as well. So we have an enormous hit on our hands. Uh, and the question, well, let's talk about the show first, because it was a lot of fun. Uh, and then, then we'll talk about why it was quite so successful. Presented by Bradley Walsh and his son Barney Walsh. I think why they've done that, I'm not sure it's for Barney Walsh's presenting skills, but I think, I suppose what they want to say is, hey, your parents loved this show, but now a new generation can also love it. So I think that whole father-son thing was a sort of nod to really what the show is in lots of ways, which is a chance for lots of people who watched it as kids and now probably have kids of their own to do the same thing. In a weird way, actually, Netflix did this once with Adam Adam Sandler. They discovered that all the people who used to go out to movie theatres to watch Adam Sandler movies now had kids and were stuck at home and watched Netflix a lot. And when no one else really wanted Adam Sandler and everyone was passing on his movies, put a huge investment into him because they could see that their algorithm showed that his stuff was really popular. So that kind of nostalgia, the sort of aged, aged audience yeah. has been big for this. Yeah, it really has. And the fact that, yeah, they didn't muck about with it too much. So if you're a parent, firstly, amazing to have something you can watch with your kids. But to have that show and to say to your kids, oh, this is an amazing show, I promise. And for it then to be an amazing show, I think is is an incredible treat. Bradley Walsh is a fascinating one. So so Bradley and Barney are a duo anyway. They, they, they do a a travelogue documentary where Barney essentially makes Bradley do a, an increasingly extreme series of sports and challenges. Uh, and it's got the title, which is rather a good title, Breaking Dad, which is <laughs> good. Uh, and, you know, they're a great double act on that. And if Bradley Walsh wants to present your show, you let Bradley Walsh present your show because the British public absolutely adore him. The presenting isn't, having said that, of this show, a whole a whole massive amount of it, really. Exactly, which and it doesn't need to be 
and it isn't. They don't overplay their part too much. We get to the action pretty quickly, in and out with a gag, and then you know you're you're straight on to hang tough. But Bradley is it's he's the best paid man on British television by a mile. Um, mainly because of uh, the, the extraordinary success of The Chase and Beat the Chasers and all the other variations of that. He brought that blankety blank to BBC One, which was a huge hit. I thought at the time that's a huge hit until the Gladiators numbers came in, which are a really huge hit. The documentary with Barney is absolutely massive. Whatever Bradley Walsh does turns to gold. What I do miss, though, is the sense... John of, Fashionu. Yeah, well, the sense that one of the presenters might have a sort of fling with what with one of the gladiators after all Rika and that you know that what was that goofy youngster she was hunter. hunter she was with you kind of want that because the gladiators is a sexed up auditorium it's like the olympic village week two swimmers right you're <laughs> off competition you're hopped up on your own glycogen and i'm telling you you are going to get through the ioc's a supply of 25,000 free condoms. That's what. That's just what happens, okay? Didn't Grinder crash uh, on the first day of the 2012 Olympics? It's, it's incredible. It's, yes, um, in it, it's, I've, I've interviewed at various Olympics. I've gone into the Athletes' Village and interviewed quite a few um, different people about it. And it's actually, the swimmers, it's just a huge thing because, you know, they're, they're off competition for week two. Um, Hold so, on, yeah. isn't, isn't your daughter six foot eight tall? Hold on, she's eleven. Well, we won't get we won't get sidetracked by the athletes village, but I always feel that Gladiator should have been a bit like that. And according to Ulrika, it was a bit like that. Mm. Like every, you know, there these lively young stars. I slightly wanted the sense that you know one of the presenters might have some. You know, maybe it'll be Mark Clattenburg because we haven't talked about someone who's resubmitting himself for national treasure status. So Mark we? Clattenburg plays the role of the referee, which was formerly played by John Anderson, who was the uh, the Scot who was a um contenders ready, gladiators ready, which Mark Clattenburg does with great relish. Mark Clattenburg is a former um, Premier League and um, elite referee. Um, much much who brings, loved. <laughs> who brings a certain amount of baggage. I suggest that he is the villain of the show, perhaps. But he could he could be an emerging villain. The, uh, I noticed, actually, when he, you, if you, when he put his arm up the whistle at one time, you see the Clattenburg body art includes... The Euros trophy and the Champions League trophy, both finals of which he has officiated in. As he, did, he, did he win them? Yeah, well, as he always says, he tried to not make it about himself. <laughs> he <laughs> he should, honestly used to say the players identified with him. I wonder if the gladiators identified with him. I didn't get a huge vibe of that. but He should, ha- he should literally have a tattoo of a whistle and on the other arm some hate mail. Yeah. <laughs> those, should, those should be his tattoos. He used uh, to have a, a, he'd drive a BMW with a number plate CL4TTS, Clats. Did he? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, he is really enjoying himself oh, in yeah. this, isn't he? He's absolutely Well, he's recently had it. to flee Egypt after a scandal I suggest you Google. Uh, his attempt to b- bring bring order to a uh, match officialdom in Egypt seems to have ended with him having to leave with just a suitcase. <laughs> I strongly recommend a quick dive into that one. Um, but, but it's a, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a lovely gig for him. All he does throughout is say contenders ready, gladiators ready, which he knows is a catchphrase already. So he's yeah. just like, he, I can see in his eyes as he is saying that he's thinking, I must be able to monetize this. Yeah, I must. I, I know I don't own the catchphrase, but I'm saying it, and he gives it everything. And he's thinking, can I do a contenders ready, Clattenburg ready podcast? Yes, this something or t-shirts. That's what he's thinking. And then later on, Viper, who I got to say, one of the gladiators outrageous absolutely cheated on the uh, on the bridge it was 
absolutely fuming. Which he loved. Clattenburg loved it because oh. he could get involved. Well, that's where they bring Clattenburg yeah. in. You can see Clattenburg thinking... <laughs> that's why you're on the show. Now it's time for my close-up. <laughs> uh, and, uh, yeah, he disqualifies Viper. I've got to say quite rightly... Um, there was 17-minute delay as they waited Viper for Viper was no VAR. wolf, though, was he, Richard? He was no wolf. Not yet, anyway. But Wolf wasn't wolf on the first episode. No, he wasn't. You know, You're right. It take, it, he, was, he was sheep in the first episodes <laughs> until, until he unrobed. Um, it's made by Hungry Bear, which is a production company, not a gladiator. Oh, I'd watch a gladiator called Hungry Bear. All who just long. just like just holds his tummy all the time. <laughs> Every time a contestant comes along, just says, "Oh, I do like fighting contestants." Mm-mm-mm. As it was, got like honey around his mouth. I who's <laughs> it's a spin-off show. The, yeah, the, the furry version. Call me Hungry Bear. Don't call me Hungry Bear. <laughs> Don't do that. That's not a nickname I need. <laughs> they have cast it so brilliantly. And they haven't forgotten the lessons of the previous Gladiators, why we all loved it. They haven't kind of gone, do you know what, let's update it. Let's be more, you know, knowing. Let, you know, They have got some baddies, uh, Viper being one of them. Legend, who is absolutely my favourite, being the other one. Yeah. And they say, Legend, you've got to have respect for your opponent. And he just goes, no. Yeah. <laughs> I, I really liked him. He's like, he's got over a million followers on Instagram. Already? Legend. He's, no, previously. What, so yeah. what's, what's his pedigree? What's his pedigree? If I may. Hold on, let me look, let me check the kennel club. <laughs> uh, he is a um, you know nutritionist and bodybuilder and we've uh, created a nation coach. of this. He's our last yes. great manufacturing industry gym rat. So I think it's great that we found a sort of outlet and where to use them. But it is, and it's great to have them actually do something yes. rather than just get big. Viper. Is great. Vi- Viper slightly was you, you know the pr- the previous iteration of Gladiators, which in a lot of ways was way ahead of its time. It had equal representation for men and yeah. women. It was very diverse, all that kind of stuff. So they haven't had to change any of that. But you know the old thing of the slightly racist Gladiator names for some of the black Gladiators, like Nightshade, Shadow, Sh- um, uh, were... Saracen. Yes. You know. So the Gladiators are brilliantly cast. They got as they did the previous time some brilliant athletes. Uh, Harry Akins Rite is Nitro, who's very much yes. my he's he's the kind of you know the golden boy he was just like just kind and thoughtful and lovely and so people for the kids to get behind him fire as well was brilliant they got people for kids to boo viper legend is <laughs> very much my favorite but they didn't change very much about it they had a series of games men and women you introduce the gladiators there's a bit of wit in there a bit of silliness a, a bit of pantomime a bit of wwe they've got a great End game, which is you know the uh, the eliminator, where all the points you score across the episode give you a head start, and that hasn't changed at all. It's identical. So if you're a parent watching at home, you're thinking, oh yeah, I remember this. This is great. And if you're a kid watching, you're getting the same experience that your parents did when they watched it. So I think fair play to Hungry Bear for doing it so brilliantly. Fair play to the BBC for doing a reboot and doing it very very well, and. I genuinely think that terrestrial TV is having a hell of a year so far. Ideas which are just brilliantly made television and which are bringing people together and bringing people together in a way that non-linear television can't li- do. Yeah, linear is not linear is not dead, and it's you know obviously reports of its death are not only exaggerated but just completely off beam. And in fact, if you look at what lots of the streamers are going to now start trying to get into, 
they're going to become more like TV channels. They're going to have much more stuff that is appointment to view that you want to be watching at the same time as everyone else. Or And fast, tele, you know, free ad supported television is going to become much more like this. So the idea that, you know, you watch television only when you want and you don't, it, it, this event television has not gone away at all. And if anything, the streamers who had nothing to do with it are trying to find ways to get in on it. And it's very important to have something in our culture where you can call your kids into the room and you can all sit down and watch. I think it's incredibly important. And it's something that, that had been lost. It's great that people, uh, Dan Baldwin's the exec on this, but there's all sorts of brilliant people behind it, are making a show that is designed specifically for people to watch with their families and to bring people together. F from a personal point of view, the thing I like most about it is when I look at that cast, as I say, it's brilliantly cast, loads of great gladiators. All I'm thinking is, oh, a couple of those would be good for House of Games. You know, and anything, anything that widens. Can you widens... please have Venom on House of Games? Venom. No, hang on. He's not called Venom. I think that's some Hangover Gladiator from the previous iteration. Hangover is another of the Gladiators. Hang I think he's. I think it's Apollo. Apollo. The kind of foppy. Apollo. The one who looked like, like he went to a like... minor public school. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Him. Can you have him on, please? I think he's called Brideshead. <laughs> Yeah, he was great. Again, you think, oh, I wonder what your story is going to be. I want to see his origin story. He was bullied at public school and and now he's seeking revenge. Me too. Yeah, I want, I want to have all of that. But you see, I would like it if he could have an ill-advised relationship with somebody on the presenting crew and I just don't think that's going to happen. Although rule nothing out. Rule, rule nothing Listen, out. rule nothing rule out. Rule nothing out with this show. It would be... I genuinely think it would be nice to have a woman co-presenting because yes. it's half men, half women and the, the audience yeah. is going to be very, very mixed as well. I absolutely guarantee we'll have at least one of the um, gladiators on House of Games. We're, we're filming a new batch in March and I guarantee at least one of the gladiators uh, will be on Strictly this year as well. By the way, have you seen the um, the documentary, the origin story documentary about American gladiators on Netflix? No, apparently it's brilliant. It is amazing. It's called Muscles and Mayhem. Yeah. It is very much an unauthorised biography of this show and it, it just shows the very origins of it being set up by it and it was so dodgy and so thrown together and then it sort of accidentally morphed into the show we know today it's really really worth watching it's it's if you were to sit down I think I wonder what a documentary about the very early days of American Gladiators would be it is that it is exactly that. It contains everything you would want it to contain. It contains every character you would want it to contain. You know, the footage of the, you know, there was, it was, there's a lot going on in Muscles and Mayhem. I'll say that. I recommend it. I did a little dive into where some of the former gladiators are. We spoke already about Wolf, didn't we? Um, yes. The fact that he was in Squid Game. Yes. The challenge. Yes. He was one of, he got knocked out in the, in the very first yes, round. I forgot about that. Sorry, I've forgotten about that. But yes, I saw, um, I saw Hunter doing an interview. I didn't know. He looked almost like he could be a sort of pundit on Jeremy Vine now. <laughs> he well, may I, well be. I don't. I th I, yes, I th it's James Crossley, isn't he? I think. I think. Yeah. yeah, I think he's often on This Morning and stuff. Again, oh, is he? Doing diet and fitness advice. Right, okay. That's really the good. thing. Um, Diane Newdale. Yeah. Jet, of course. Oh, the wonderful the Jet. She's a psychotherapist. She just uh, got married to a woman she met in the supermarket. And every picture you see of her, she looks very, very happy, which very is good. nice because there's a generation who wish nothing but happiness for, uh, for Jet. Ace is about to be ordained as a Church of England cleric. Shut the front door. He calls he calls himself a gladiator of the gospel. Oh my! Oh my I've got to get into that one. He is <laughs> he is smiting all around. But the, the most famous one, Eunice Hutheart. Yes, but he, she was a she was a contestant. Imagine remembering the name of someone as a contestant. She was a contestant. Then she became a gladiator. Yeah. Uh, and then she became a stunt double. So she's Angelina Jolie stunt double. You know, she works on all the big films. She is godmother to Angelina and Brad's child, Shiloh. 
Wow. That's a bit like jury service, though. I think they've got so many, everyone gets called up at some point. <laughs> Are you not? Poor old you. Am I not? <laughs> do, you, do you know yeah. I'm not? Not, 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 not? not with my history with Angelina. <laughs> She's not. I mean, honestly, Brad, Brad would not have it. Yeah. I guarantee you that. Can I say one final thing, which is I, I tried... I'm always fascinated by music. And one of the lovely things they've done on this show is they haven't messed about with the music, the theme music. Um, you know, do you have the speed and the skill to be a gladiator? Yeah. And I was trying to, I thought, who's written that? Is it Hall & Oates? Who is it? Uh, and it's a guy called Muff Murfin has written it. I couldn't find anything about it anywhere. And as always, podcasts help you out. And there's a thing called GladPod, which is a podcast all about gladiators. Uh, Jet hosts it. Uh, and they, they talk to Muff Murfin. And he was saying that, there's a lovely man called John K. Cooper, who's one of the big old school entertainment producers at ITV, did Blind Date and all that stuff. And he'd been tasked with making an English version of this. And he knew Muff Murfin, who wrote jingles. And he knew that Muff had done the jingle for um, Capital Radio's Eye in the Sky, the, the helicopter traffic. And John loved that so much. He said to Muff, would, would you write the thing due to Gladiators? So Muff went away, flew over to Dallas, recorded it with some unknown session singer. Uh, and it's still exactly the same one now. It's so great. Oh, that was fantastic. Yes, I like any any theme tune that explains the show within the, the theme tune. I've got a weakness for. So if you haven't watched it uh, and you've got kids, if you haven't watched it and you used to watch it, I think it's, I think it's really, really worth a watch it's a lot of fun it's very silly and it's exactly the same as it used to be and we'll, we'll talk more I, I suspect in another week about reboots and what why there are so many and what that means and channels playing it safe but well, we this... might talk a bit more about nostalgia in our next item which is dead celebrities i mean that's the ultimate nostalgia yeah. isn't it dead i mean people. yes De so development of sort of holographic te um, technology and things like that Based on things like the Abba Voyage, which is obviously a hugely successful kind of concert property, really. George Michael's estate, having said not that long ago that they weren't going to get into this, have now registered saying that activity at the group will broaden in the next one to three or years to include live public performances. <laughs> and funnily enough, for sort of TV thing that um, I worked on, I ended up doing a bit of research into sort of dead celebrities. And there are there is a whole agency in America, a guy called Michael, I think he's called, is he called Michael Rossler? Mark Rossler. And he's got an agency called CMG, which essentially deals with dead celebrities. Does, and, does CMG stand for Corpse Management Group? Yeah, I mean, it really, <laughs> that's brilliant, yes. I mean, I think we're dealing, you're dealing with a certain type of person, let's yes. put it that way. He claims to manage Ingrid Bergman, Betty Davis, <laughs> Billy Holiday. And wow. to some, to all intents and purposes, it sort of does. There is a huge, huge, this is a multi, multi-billion dollar industry a year already. What they're called is Delebs. That is the formal industry term for it. D-E-L-E-B-S, Delebs. I mean, these people make go, I mean, James Dean, he made three films in his life and he does not stop working now. I can't remember. I mean, he's, he's done McDonald's advert, Christ adverts, so many adverts. Recently, not that long ago, they actually said they're making a Vietnam film in which they couldn't find anyone to cast who would be as good as James Dean. So they were casting him. And it became quite a big sort of bone of contention. Lots of people saying this is really, this is going too far. And in the end, it has been cancelled, but it will happen. In fact, you know, a big, I think it's interesting. Another thing that happened this week is a sort of comedian who specialises in AI dropped an AI George Carlin comedy special. 
which again um, has caused quite a lot of controversy, and he's made it very clear that this is just his sort so of. So he's AI done his version. material through George Carlin. He's yeah, the, he's, he's the great old he, American it, comedians. Can voice. I say that it falls short of does the original? It? Yes, it does. <laughs> and and actually, something that his daughter, something that she really condemned this and said, humans are so afraid of the void that we can't let what has fallen into it stay there. I think that's quite interesting. Yeah. It's just for money that this thing is happening. And I know that lots of people say, yes, but it's wonderful to be able to see George Michael again. Well, I'm, you know, I'm sorry. People die and this is what happens. And I don't, I'm slightly against the, the ABBA thing is a different thing. They're all alive and it was, it's more of a sort of concept show in lots and lots of ways. And it's got a sort of story to it and it's a, a different kind of thing. But kind of reviving celebrities after their death is half of Martin Luther King's estate is controlled by some of the children and and the others don't have control. This guy, the one I was talking about, CMG, <laughs> Corpse Management Group, he licensed him to um, sell Dodge trucks once in a Super Bowl advert not that long ago. I oh mean, is goodness. this what Martin Luther King would have wanted? I have a dream, off-road yeah. utility. Yeah. <laughs> I'm more for people being allowed to stay dead. And obviously Star Wars have done it. We've had You've had Peter Cushing was sort of revived for Rogue One and I think one of the later ones. Carrie Fisher. Uh, Carrie Fisher, obviously. Yeah. Um, and you're going to see it more and more. It was a big, big bone of contention in the SAG after the Screen Actors Guild strike, which is, you know, actors feel that AI is a sort of existential threat to them. And I think that the deal they got, I can see why lots of them aren't even happy. And they do feel that soon, sooner rather than later their images will be used in this way. There's also a sort of old celebrities are approached by these groups mm. and sign, perhaps elderly and infirm, sign away their future rights while they're still alive for a, a sum now. And I think that they're, I think it's a very, I think it's a very complicated area, but it's an increasingly lucrative one. And it's happening more and more in music as well. Dylan sold his catalogue for 400 million. Mm. Bowie, after his death, his catalogue was sold for 250 million you know so the huge amount of money in it uh elvis still makes over 100 million dollars yeah. every he's year he's normally the top it, this year will be a big year but um, you know what always from graceland graceland yes. is where he makes almost all his money yeah. the theme park and the merchandise yes. it's literally his house is uh he's like a and he's, it's not that enormous yeah, he's it's, like a north london couple he bought in the 80s yeah his, his house is making him all his money so he, but even jeff Bacara, who was the drummer from toto he sold his publishing rights. He passed away many years mm. ago, but his publishing rights were sold for $25 million. There's an awful lot of money in old music. But going back to ABBA Voyage for a moment, have you seen it? Yes, I have. I mean, I thought it was magnificent. It felt like an entirely it's, different form of art. Yes, it, it, exactly. But I think that that's a... That is separate, I think, to some of these things, which is just trying to sort of monetize the the dead person. I think they, you know, they they were all they collaborated on it. They had this idea. They didn't want to be old on stage. All sorts of things, but I don't think it's the same as sort of reviving people in this way, often without their consent. Simon Fuller said he came up with the idea for um, Voice. He's not he's not involved in it, but I, I know he had early discussions when he saw the two pack hologram and thought. Do you remember that? Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. Uh, and thought, hold on a minute. Um, I think that when you go and see that ABBA thing, I was talking to my brother, my brother, my brother has an interesting view. He says, you know, when we think about Mozart and Beethoven, that's the canon of classical music. We don't just need to, we don't need to see Beethoven and Mozart play it. I agree. You know, just any anyone can do it. And he said, look, the music of the, you know, 60s and 70s and 80s is canon now, and it's going to be around forever and ever and ever. So if I'm George Michael's estate and who clearly love him a great deal, but to send George Michael around the world and to and to and to let him sing for 
fans again. I think I don't mind it. I think there's something in our culture that just can't handle the end of things in this way. I think that it's really significant to me that in Marvel movies, they've sort of almost invented the multiverse or any character can come back to life, really. And they've done that. And as a result, people are just not used to... They can't really deal with endings. There's sort of beginnings, middles, new beginnings. And there are no stakes in the same way because if you remove the idea of death as final and things like that, then you, what you're removing in, to a large extent is the, the kind of greater stakes in types of drama and things like that. There's also another thing, which is if you're a producer or an executive, the hardest thing to deal with is the talent. The one thing about dead talent is they're easier to deal with. I bet this guy loves his, his books. He's, he's got the easiest client book. Occasionally you get someone like Michael Jackson, you're thinking, all oh, right, well, that makes things a little bit difficult. But Yeah, but he's not getting Yeah, he's not getting five calls a week from Ingrid Bergman. No. She's, she? she's, yeah, no, I bet she didn't like where she got sat at the uh, the awards. Anything, <laughs> yeah, none of that. You're exactly. not having any of this. She's been airbrushed They're the easiest in clients there. in the world. His book of the dead. He can, And also what it means is that the fans who might wish to depict their fallen idols in any kind of way are actually at the mercy of really aggressive entertainment lawyers who say, no, well, hang on, we own the rights to that. You can't do that. You can't make a tribute. Some of the King family or some of the King family estate, rather, have charged millions of dollars for having statues put up to him, but were were happy to license um, for the Dodge commercial, whereas other members of the family are really against it. But I, I, I have to say, I don't think it's a positive thing. Once you know that um, Kiss, the, the rock band Kiss, are of course doing a holographic tour. Of course they are. The most shameless monetizers in the whole, almost, I think probably in rock history, I don't think there's any of it. They even had a coffin, a Kiss branded coffin once, the Kiss casket. Wow. Yeah. Gene Simmons said, uh, I love living, but this makes the alternative look pretty damn good. Oh, I'm sure good. after his own death, he'll have sewn it up so that no one will be able to make any more money. He'll have got the last penny while he's still alive. But perhaps know, that's but what we should order. You can't take it with you. All I'm hearing, though, is that Kiss are going to do a, a hologram concert, which, which, <laughs> which I'm you're going to go to. Absolutely, of course, of course <laughs> I am. I'm absolutely fully uh, in favour of it. But then there's people like um, Tolkien made half a billion dollars. He sold it, His rights were sold for half a billion dollars the year before. So if you're the relatives of somebody who's with a great back catalogue of music or a great uh, canon of literature I don't know what you do if someone offers you half a billion and you think well it might mean that my great granddad at some point is a, you know in an advert for Olivetti but uh, half a billion dollars is a lot of money I've, I've been dealing recently with um, the Agatha Christie organisation it's her great great grandson James I think he runs that and that's the way to do it. You know, he clearly cares about Agatha Christie and he cares about the legacy and he cares about the work. And, you know, they do very, very interesting things. So, you know, I think there's ways and means of doing it right. Um, I think the big thing is going to be movies where you're going to be able to have Robert De Niro and Clint Eastwood in movies for the next 50, 60, 70 years. You know, you're going to be able to have whoever you want in any movie you want. I was talking to someone who said, you can put yourself in these, you can put yourself in Back to the Future. Yeah, well, you this know. was the bit. This is what a lot of actors had a big problem with. The first of all, the idea that you couldn't find anyone other than James Dean for this Vietnam movie, but um, Harry Styles, yeah, surely. <laughs> but you, but you're you're feeling that you're going to be done out of work, and why wouldn't you be? And that's it, it's sort of existential for the actors, and that's why I think they're going to have to go back to the table on AI 
but also everything I guess is existential. ideas up in three years, but even everything, sooner. Everything is existential for actors, really. Well, isn't it? But yeah, this is a bad. I do. I genuinely think this is a bad one. I genuinely yeah. think, however gently, gently they're pushing things at the moment, just bit by bit they're going to put their foot in the door, and there's going to be people in films who don't really exist, and there's going to be people in well, films. This is who why they got the, the deal. They yeah. got the de- they got the deal. The actors and the writers got the deals in the. Big two big strikes that happened last summer, a big part of which of both strikes was AI. They got the deals because it's just not quite good enough yet for the studios to be using it. But believe me, as soon as it is, you'll have to be back at that table and you won't be getting anything like that deal anymore. Shall we take a break? Let's take a break. Welcome back. We've just been Googling uh, Apollo during the break, The Gladiator, and he did go to a minor public school. He went to school in Barnard Castle, Richard, which hopefully he will supersede Barnard Castle as the reason for which we currently know it to be famous. I just I used to love the Barnard Castle days. It was the easiest gag in the world, any time anything like that was mentioned. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but no, no longer. Come on, Apollo, you revitalise that brand. We are now going to talk about celebrity authors because I've read I read an article this weekend, a big article about celebrity authors. First of all, the the list of the most um, popular thirty authors of twenty twenty three came out. Richard, you are extremely near the top of it. I hope you already know this. Um, but um, also, there was an article about celebrity authors and whether they're a sort of bad thing in general for publishing. Um, and I pretty sure you'll want to make a distinction between children's celebrity authors and Mm. adult celebrity authors. Uh, Hit me with your knowledge on this, because I'm not quite sure what I feel. I noticed you were quoted extensively in the article, which, you know, and I agreed with all the things you said. But in general, I slightly do feel that sort of thing that a lot of people feel, particularly in the children's writing space, which is that books, book deals given to celebrities um, to write children's books and they haven't really shown any other previous interest mm-hmm. in writing at all and it becomes an extension of the brand it's just another thing they do they might have a fashion line they might have a series of children's books it's keeping other or, pot- or potential authors off the shelves yeah I agree absolutely I mean I, I'm often asked about it of course I am and I've always I've I've been lucky but I think people tend not to lump me in I think people understand that, you know that I've always been a writer and that you know I, I've wrote the book without telling on I was doing it and all that you know I didn't go out looking for a I book I knew deal. you would have done that I know I there's very few authors on this top 30 list that I've read but you were one of them but I don't think of you as in the same space as quite a lot of these other ones who e.g. used to be in McFly and the article if you want to have a go at Tom Fletcher you come through me I, okay <laughs> if any if any member of McFly if you have a problem with any of them you've got a problem with me anyway we'll, we will move on to McFly in another episode I'm sure they're lovely I haven't read the books. If you have not read, read the, the dinosaur that list. pooped Christmas, <laughs> um, now there's a there's a distinction made in the article, which is a, it's a really good article by John Self, uh, which is a pseudonym I think uh, in the Guardian, and there are some celebrity authors, of course. You know, I put myself on that list: Bob Mortimer, Dawn French, who are writers. Yes. And Graham Norton, Ruth Jones, and if you're a writer, at some point you're going to write a novel. I mean, you just are because yeah. you're a writer and you get to the stage in life where you've got a bit more time on your hands. You've got hopefully a few more things in your head that you want to say. So you write a novel and you do it yourself and you give it to a publisher and they read it and they go, this is a good novel. We're going to publish it. There's obviously an advantage in having a, a public profile when you go to promote it. But there's not an advantage when you're trying to sell it. You have to write the book. And I, mean, I have to say that, public, you know, in a pretty atomized culture, publishing is an industry like anything else and it has to survive and bringing in people who have followings already is a way of 
of making that happen and it doesn't necessarily mean if people come through the door of a bookshop that they're going to choose those books but those names might get people through the door through the door uh there's on the other extreme there's a group of people shirley ballas is a good example the strictly judge who are very open about you know going and say i've got an idea for a novel i'm i'm not going to write it but i would love it to be written you know who credit their ghostwriter who talk about it incredibly openly the book comes out the public can work out whether they want to buy that and read that or not, on the strength of the story and all of those things. Now, the interesting bit in the article and the interesting bit in the industry is there is a middle ground of celebrities who have written books that they haven't really written uh, and who don't really admit to it. The clues are all there. Everyone in the industry knows, by the way, because any time a celebrity is pitched to you, they need a ghostwriter and mm. they come to agents for the ghostwriter. So people um, know what's going on there. Now... I'm happy that there's a world in which Bob Mortimer and Ruth Jones are writing novels because they write great novels and Dawn French. You know, they. I grew up. I'd loved, they're writers. They're writers. I loved the novels of Ben Elton when I was, yeah. you know, back back in the day. You know, it's Stephen Fry. Hugh Laurie wrote an amazing novel called The Gunsetter, which, which he, he never was followed so up. So good. He's so good at everything, and yeah. he if he just said, "I hated doing it so much. I'm never going to do it again." He actually, I think he he won a prize for it and everything. He's. I mean, he can. He's. He's really good at music, obviously. Yeah. He's fantastic. He's obviously brilliant at acting. I mean, he is he a wrote, real... He wrote for Oxford, didn't he? Or at Cambridge, Cambridge I think, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. Cambridge, yeah. He could have been a gladiator. Yeah. <laughs> called, called Worcester. Yeah. So I think that there are going to be celebrities who write novels, and if you read those novels and you don't like the first one, you're not going to read the second one, you're not going to read the third one. And so, you know, that's always going to be part of the industry, and that's going to make money for the industry. But, you know, the reason Hugh Laurie didn't write another one is it's really hard. Yes. Like it's it's so painful and so difficult creatively. Listen, there's much harder jobs, but creatively it's one of the but hardest. But it's not as if you're just having some lame idea and getting a ghostwriter to do it. And I really object to that. I think that's taking work and shelf space from people who are far, far more talented. And just because you're a good judge on a reality show or something like that, whether, why on earth should you have this other thing? If you can't do it yourself, I'm fine, have a memoir and someone will ghostwrite that and I hope you acknowledge them when you do it but I just think it, it, it's it's genuinely dreadful and I just think it, it it actually makes the market more and more sort of moronic really I think it just lowers the lowers the tone lowers the intellectual standard lowers if you don't have people artists creating their own work not only does it shut people out but it lower it, not this thing of a sort of a rising tide lifts all boats mm. I actually think it pushes the culture down into the mire and I think some of the stuff on the shelves is real rubbish and there's no need for it to be there and I think publishers should stop doing it well this is what I think there's been a series of you know my world is, is, is crime and thriller and there's been a series of celebrity written crime and thriller things this year and it's really hard to write those books and there are people there who have not written their books now, the irony is they're not selling any copies. They haven't been hits. You know, I've sold copies. Richard Coles wrote copies, but he was writing when I was writing. He didn't. Mm. There was no bandwagon jumping there. He, just, he wanted to write, and he did write, and people have read them and liked them and gone back for the, for, for the second one. But almost all of the headline celebrities, of people they've, they've, they've got to write crime books, have not sold any copies. And so I would say to people in publishing, if people are listening, one hopes they are, if you currently have a deal on your desk where an agent has come to you with a with a celebrity or you've gone to an agent and said could they write a crime book or could they write you know whatever it is you want them to write don't do it if you're going to pay them a hundred thousand pound take that hundred thousand pound split it into three and give it to three people who are great young writers who need money to write a novel who want to give up the day job for a bit to write a novel just do that 
absolutely guarantee you you're more likely to have a, a real hit book if you do that. Chasing this ridiculous thing of celebrity is absurd. Look at the numbers of last year. Just look at every single book that came out that was a celebrity novel and look at the numbers. Don't look at the headline numbers of the people in the top 30. Look at the big numbers that long tail of publishing where books come out and they absolutely disappear. And you paid a fortune for it. You yeah. paid a fortune for it because it sounds good in a meeting. And don't allow yourself be, to be treated as some kind of brand extension. Just have a bit of self-respect. I mean, I'm, there are certain people on this list that I think, you know, I'm not quite sure, having looked at the earlier children's, but why Jerry Halliwell has been given any another, another book deal. I mean, I loved her in The Spice Girls, but she's now a sort of bit part and drive to survive and doing very well. She doesn't need this. Jamie Oliver, who has spent a couple of decades saying to everybody, I've never even read a book, has now written one. And I'm not sure that it, it, taking away from somebody else, he's got he's got a huge sort of multi-format brat, lifestyle brand, all sorts of different things. Does he need the books as well? And do they really need to be part of it? I, I really think there is a limited amount of shelf space, marketing budget, all those sorts of things, and it should go to younger people because in the end, your industry will eat itself if you keep doing that. That's exactly right. And, you know, as you say, listen, the, the, the list of the, the top-selling authors last year came out and... Anyone in publishing, also anyone, if you're sitting writing a book now, I think it's impossible for me, for me to sort of sell copies. Or get, there's some great names on this list. Number so what? Well, J.K. Rowling is number three. Yeah, uh, she wasn't a celebrity. She just sat no. down and worked her ass off and wrote the first book and sold it. And Julia know, Donaldson's number one. Julia Donaldson yeah. is number one, the children's author, yeah. which is great. I mean, yeah. she's got 400 books and they all yeah. keep selling year after year after year after year. Colleen Hoover is number four. Now, Colleen Hoover was a care worker. In America, who self-published online, got a little bit of traction from that, got a little bit more traction, sold it to a to a, a, a physical book publisher, and is now the best-selling author in the whole world. And you know, darling of TikTok and all, all of these never, things. I mean, I don't, really, I don't really read books like this. It's an awful thing to um, say. Jeff Kinney, who does uh, um, Diary of a Wimpy Kid, is mm. number seven. He was a cartoonist who did his stuff online, yeah. did web stuff. And again, people, just a couple of people started picking up on it. And then he became one of the biggest authors in the world. Lee Child is number eight. Yeah. Lee, he was sacked He was sacked from a job in television. Uh, sounds familiar. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, said, said well, I'm going to write the Reacher novels and did it. Almost everybody on this list, if you go down uh, the list, Bonnie Garmus wrote, wrote her first book in the 60s, and Lessons it's an in um, Chemistry. The, Lessons in Chemistry is an unbelievable phenomenon. It's already been made into yeah. a TV um, limited series. Alice Oseman is on the list, number 12. Yeah. She's a young British writer who wrote the Heartstopper yeah. series. Again, almost everyone on this list. Lisa Jewell is on this list. She worked in fashion retail, got fired, and a friend of her, better, she couldn't write a book, so she wrote three chapters. And now she sells millions of books all around the world. That was Ralph's party, the, the first yeah. thing she did, which was huge. So if you look on this list, there are hardly any celebrities. In the children's space, there are. David Williams is there. Um, Tom Fletcher uh, from McFly is in there. But in the adult space, in the in the top 30, there's not... I mean, I, I'm on it. I, I have to. <laughs> that's the elephant in the room. And But, you know, I hope that, uh, you know, I've proved myself over, over four books that I'm, I'm, a, I'm an author. Uh, but there aren't any others in there. There aren't any others in there. What are on the list are a huge series of people who sat at home wrote something thinking no one's going to read it and then got picked up. And that's where most hits come from. Gabriella yeah. Zevini wrote Tomorrow and Tomorrow and Tomorrow. It's her 10th novel, and that's a worldwide smash. So there's lots of articles about celebrity authors and stuff like that. So to publishers, I would say, 
stop doing the ones that are ghostwritten uh, or put that ghostwriter's name on the cover. It's outrageous. And it, the, it, the whole industry knows it. All the other authors know yeah. whose stuff is ghostwritten. Everybody does. And it's Do you a, slag it off at the festivals? Of course. Because, well, because write, it's really hard to write. And yeah. writers talk about they're in the middle yeah. of a job and you get someone swanning in who you just think, oh, you, you don't appear troubled by the creative process particularly, do you? And so, of course, you slag them off. So publishers stop doing it. Uh, and to anyone sitting at home thinking no one's ever going to read my stuff, just keep at it because there's a whole series of names on this list which are the, the, the top 30 best-selling uh, authors in the UK th- across the whole year. It's a it's a tough list to get onto. And there's a whole series of people here who just sat down at home and did and who it. are new names in yeah. lots of ways, which I think is really exactly. interesting because the, the, the sort of old heritage names, as it were. You know, you would say, um, obviously Agatha Christie, yeah. J.K. Rowling, um, for someone who's fully fully established for much longer. I suppose Julia Donaldson in her own way, Stephen yeah. King, yeah. Tolkien. Yes. But other than They're that, there, but, yeah, but yeah. other than that, you've got lots and lots of new names coming into the mix. Sometimes with a first book, sometimes with, uh, and I, I think that is encouraging. Listen, the main takeaway is I beat J.K. Rowling. That's the main takeaway. But I got beaten by Julia Donaldson, so that's uh, that's a nice position to be in, I would say. Um, should we do a couple of recommendations? I want to recommend yes. something that uh, we watched over the weekend. You know, when you just randomly hit upon something on Netflix, we watched this thing. It's a two-part documentary about a, a crime in Australia called Last Stop Larimer. It's a little town. It's got 11 residents, and there's a murder. And it's a documentary made by the Duplass brothers, and it's so brilliant. We talked on, on the question and answer thing about when is it okay to do true crime stuff and when is it exploitative. Yeah. And this, I think, is the absolute perfect example of when it's okay because it's such an incredible portrait of a way of life and of a group of people and of human nature, and it's told in such a beautiful way. But at the same time, there, there's a crime at the heart of it, and there's extraordinary, extraordinary God, how extraordinary a population characters. of that size. Yeah, of Funnily enough, people. I was talking to someone the other day who was explaining to me about a place she went to in Alaska. Um, it's a city, qualifies as a city by their standards. There are 48 residents, and 17 of them are on the local council, and it changes all the time. Wow. I just thought, well, I mean, that, not, not, hopefully not such a tragedy, but I thought that is a real sitcom. God, isn't it just? Yeah. Yeah. On, on on governance, just yeah. So if you last stop Larimer, I'd really really recommend it. What's it's that a, on? It's on Netflix, and it's Larimer is the name of the little town. I think it's L A R R I M A H. But um, yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's unlike anything I've seen before, and by you 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 absolutely get. Sucked in. You have opinions on every single person who appears on screen. <laughs> that's for sure. Well, speaking of which, in the not in the fictional space, I have been. I finished something called The Curse, which is on Paramount Plus. I'm sorry, that might not be everybody's streaming service. However, it's got um, Emma Stone and the brilliant Nathan Fielder, the c- comedian who wrote it with this uh, with Benny Safdie, um, who's also in it. Um, and it is. I mean, it's a real Marmite show. I talked t- t- to a lot of people. Some people who just really couldn't get along with it but Emma Stone is totally fantastic I'm going to go and see her in Poor Things this afternoon and I I think it's very odd and it's really worth having a look at it's just a very odd way of making comedy but it's sort of comedy of excruciation and cringe and but it's unusual and it, it becomes something weirder um, but I'll, I won't say any more than that. But anyway, it's called The Curse and it's screening in the UK on Paramount+. Plus. So The Curse and Last Stop Larimer. We're going to do another question and answer session uh, coming out on 
Thursday, yes. is that right? Very good. All your questions are so good. Do please keep them coming. The rest is entertainment at gmail.com. There's some great questions this yeah. week as well. There's so many. We're going to have to get round to them all eventually because they're, they're all of very high quality. So gladiators, dead celebrities and ghost written books. That was a lot of fun. Um, we'll uh, see you all on Thursday. See you then. Mm-hmm.